0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Georgia. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University, and I'm joined today by...
1: By Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute, where I'm a senior fellow.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. As per usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it's just the two of us, so that means war talk full on, <laughs> <laughs> since, since Dotybor is not here. None of this economics
1: or culture or anything, just good old slaughter.
0: <laughs> and um, we want to dedicate um, this episode, even if it's a day or two by the time it's get it gets published, belated to Ukrainian independence. Happy Independence Day, we all cheered with you, to many, many more years of independence and freedom from Russia. Amen to that. Amen to that. That said, um, what we um, want to um, look at today on the occasion of Independence Day and six months of the war, we want to look a little bit back to learn from the last six months um, what conclusions we can draw to help us look into the next six months and um, where um, the war is going to take us in overall the European security architecture. And we're going to offer some tidbits and comments as per usual on Germany and on maybe, independent of that, Daria Dugina and her um, death and funeral in Moscow over the last few days. Um, But let's give credit where credit is due. Let's focus on Ukraine first. And I'm just going to turn to you, Giselle. What do you think? How How does the situation look like six months in? Well, it's pretty
1: amazing that there is still a Ukraine six months on. I mean, I think you and I were probably more optimistic or combination of optimism and hopeful uh, than maybe many were and certainly many military analysts uh, were at the beginning uh, of the war. But even, even allowing for that, the performance, the will of the Ukrainian people performance of the Ukrainian military. And one thing that nobody, I think, could have seen coming, uh, the leadership of Vladimir Zelensky. I, I've just been really superb, uh, stunning, shocking, and a real beacon, uh, if you will, uh, not only uh, for, for Ukrainians, but for all freedom-loving peoples. Uh, this has been, nobody, I think, could have possibly anticipated this. And, and it's resonated far beyond Ukraine, far, far beyond the war per se. Uh, it's helped to reinvigorate the NATO alliance, uh, new members in the NATO alliance, you know, formerly neutral countries uh, in Europe. it's It's certainly changed the balance of influence among America's European allies. I mean, we should probably talk about each one of these things before I just make the list too incredibly long. But um, you know, first of all, the the spirit uh, and the the lust for freedom of uh, of the Ukrainian people has uh, shown a a resolution and a, a heart and a spine to Western peoples that. Certainly people like Vladimir Putin and other autocrats around the world have been increasingly dismissive, including many in the West, many despairing voices in the West. So, you know, I don't want to get too far off the deep end, but it certainly has felt like a slow turning in the political and cultural history of of the West, if that still is a meaningful term.
0: It, it's hard to draw conclusions in the middle of war, but to me, there's... Two things um, I think you're you're making a lot of sense by by extrapolating lessons um, that we've seen from Ukraine to the rest of us across Europe and in the United States and I know the discussions are still incipient um, on on this topic, but for so many years, also due to Russian propaganda and other authoritarian propaganda and due to our own problems. We have been focused so much on our democratic, liberal democratic crises that we have ended up oftentimes separating on one side the lust and hunger for freedom and liberal democracy at its best, from patriotism. And I think that to me is one of the most important lessons that I personally draw from Ukraine and and their example, that they have shown these two things work perfectly in sync, that they can, and that they don't have to be dissociated. And I really want for us in the rest of the Western world to... um, to take these lessons to heart um, when it comes to our own crises. Um, I see that so much across my generation and younger generations in my students here in the United States, but also in Europe, that people are almost feeling ashamed of patriotism um, when it comes to liberal democracy, and I'm hoping that Ukraine will change that in many people's minds. It certainly has for me. I couldn't have imagined six months ago that this would be so possible and so palpable in front of our eyes.
1: You know, you make a really good point there. One thing that has puzzled me, however, is that this whole experience seems to mark a change in the nature of Ukrainian nationalism too i mean i don't want to get too sort of uh, philosophical here but but so much of uh recent or 20th century uh Ukrainian national history there've been obviously incredible oppressions and tragedies visited on the Ukrainian people but there have also been very dark episodes uh that have roots in Ukrainian sort of tribalism or nationalism or or what have you. Ukraine is reminding us of the value of patriotism in enabling liberalism and that you need a state in order to have a liberal society. But Ukraine is trying to change itself too, or at least in some ways. It's, I mean, I mean again, I'm no expert in this, but I, I'm struck by how much Probably my past uh, preconceptions about the nature of Ukrainian society were, were off or misguided or don't capture what's going on uh, in Ukrainian society now.
0: And, you know, you're not alone in this. Me too, I have to admit. I had surprises. As you were suggesting at the beginning, I think you and I were more optimistic and maybe had a better understanding of Ukraine, but it was clearly incomplete. And if I may say, I think it is even for Ukrainians, it's a surprise. And to me, what you're saying is sort of reflected in Zelensky's remarks yesterday. He said um, Ukraine has been reborn, and I don't exactly know what he meant by that. That. But I think Ukrainians, to a certain extent, are also surprised in how aggression has, this deep set aggression has changed them and how they're looking onto onto the future. The the other thing that I want to mention, because it was even more touching than some of the amazing things I've seen yesterday on um, on Ukrainian independence uh, here in the United States, the largest Ukrainian flag in uh, in Central Park, the you know the sunflowers on Downing Street, um, all these amazing um, symbols of Ukrainianness and, and support for Ukraine. To me, the most touching thing um, has happened on Zoom this morning when I was hosting um, a series of Fellows on the Black Sea region on a program that I run and including an alumni from Ukraine. And uh, while she was holding her few months old baby, um, she was um, sharing, you know, very deep thoughts about Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian refugees. She is leading together with a friend in Brussels where she works and lives, um, a psychological support group um, for refugees. And she was telling us this story um, that uh, I haven't seen written much up. And maybe this is uh, not a very optimistic way, but, but anyway, a way to look into the future and the things that we should be aware of in Ukraine, and we'll discuss it later or beyond. The story that she shared was around Mariupol, right? We don't hear anything about Mariupol anymore. She has family that was in Mariupol. Uh, a man specifically, who um, has been deported uh, to Russia, taken all his papers, and he managed to return. He was taken to Far East Russia, managed to return, and um, has been able to keep in some kind of contact with his family in Ukraine and in Brussels. And what they have learned is that um, Russia is not only preparing for a referendum in Mariupol, and that the scenario they think is going to look like the Crimea scenario, but that what is happening there is the old fashioned of the 20s and 30s um, during um, the time, the rough times, so to speak, or many of the rough times in the Soviet Union, when Russia is apparently massively deporting Ukrainians and replacing them with Russians from the Far East. They are offering materials for free for those who want to rebuild their houses. They're giving free houses to Russians. So she was pointing out that we're going to have a big problem in humanitarian terms because at some point these um, cities or areas will come under fire and what will happen to those Russians? Are they innocent? Are they a victim? Um are they um part of aggression? It will be very difficult even for us in the West to deal with that mentally and strategically as well. and so the way she thought about these things was so was really impressive to me because it's it must be difficult if you're a Ukrainian with a tiny baby in your arms, thinking about your family, who is in this situation in Mariupol with no way of returning um to a- anywhere inside or a- any victory for them inside anytime soon
1: there are no doubt hundreds of thousands if not millions of similar ukrainian uh, stories you know even those who have just taken refuge uh you know in poland or s- romania or you know moved westward uh, to stay out of the way of the war or families who have been separated, where some are staying to fight, staying to live, so on and so forth. Yeah, so, you know, putting Ukraine back together is going to be uh, a very, very challenging task. But as always, it, it comes down to how quickly and how decisively. Ukraine can claim a comprehensive victory. You know, maybe these Russians, I mean, you know, there's been an exodus from Crimea.
0: Yeah, she mentioned that too.
1: (laughs) No doubt these Russians are operating in kind of an information vacuum, to put it mildly. But if somebody knew the whole situation, uh, moving to occupied uh, Ukraine, you know, no matter how much money the Russian government is is subsidizing you might not be a great long-term plan
0: <laughs> to put it mildly <laughs> you know so
1: and and in its own way that's a humanitarian tragedy as well but it's one that also has its author in
0: moscow yeah definitely but um uh giselle before we move into the future um or into the far future you um just alluded to the military side of things so i'm curious Remember, we talked about this over the last few months, this mysterious date that Zelensky put forth off if I'm not mistaken, August 26th. Um, And I have not managed to make sense of that. And then I've heard in parallel Western intelligence analyses who have um, kind of pointed to September as being a crucial month. So before looking into next year and the spring, we are now supposed to be already, according to the timeline that both Ukraine and the West has partially provided Western intelligence, in the counteroffensive. Right. Um, what I've seen on the map is Russia indeed stalling; no major progress uh, territorially in the last few weeks. Um, and then we have discussed, you know, here and there, a bit of an analysis of of the Kherson counteroffensive. But I'm curious how you see the situation on the ground and also what is actually missing, what the Ukrainians yeah. need and we're not delivering because it comes down to that. We have sort of stopped talking about that mostly, but um, and they've been very kind to not bug in the public that much about it. Um, but they, we still know that they don't have everything they need. So how do you see it?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really super question. And I've held off writing about the tactical situation um, in Ukraine for (laughs) an eternity of uh, at least a month or so because I'm just frankly puzzled by the situation, right? It is true that the Russian effort has culminated, to use that now uh, commonplace term. I mean, they are out of steam. Uh, You and I both noted earlier today that, the Russians are supposed to be moving up tactical aircraft to the theater of operations, although basing them inside Russia. Some
0: conscripts, yeah.
1: Yeah, so you're trying to increase the size of the, of the military. Both those things are a measure of how much the Russians are out of schlitz, to use a term from my childhood. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they simply don't have the, the wherewithal to... Mount any major offensive at this point. The Ukrainians have been cautious and clever, and have used the weaponry that they've got. But as we can see now that we're, you know, well into the period where the pendulum is, if not shifting, then you know, is is resting. Really, that the, the most the Ukrainians seem to be able to do is to prepare the battlefield to use another military. Technical term. So when they strike railheads and uh, airports and ammunition dumps and stuff like that, they're helping to choke off uh, the Russian uh, forces, but they're not really expelling them from territory. I, I was frankly really disappointed that in announcing that, they, you know, one of the things that the Biden administration did for Ukrainian Independence Day was to announce its biggest arms package yet. Mm. But that was very much more of the same.
0: ammunition,
1: yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was all good and so on and so forth. But I was hoping that this would be the moment where they cracked the ice and started leaning into giving the Ukrainians the ability ability to dominate their airspace and to create the uh, heavy offensive ground power that will still be needed to to you know you can choke off the Russians, but this is like World War One in that, short of uh, you know having the the heavy kind of forces that are still needed to eject people from fortified or fixed positions, it's going to be really difficult for the Ukrainians uh, to do. Much more, and I can't imagine that the Russians are going to give anything up, you know, simply because their people are out of ammo or starving uh, in Herson or wherever. Um, maybe that's still to come, and it, and it will take some time to be sure for the Ukrainians to integrate that kind of equipment and to learn how to employ it, all the things together in a combined arms way that would. That would avoid the catastrophic mistakes that the Russians have been so terribly prone to up until this point. But the longer that moment is postponed, the you know the longer the war is going to continue. So again, to I, I can't imagine that there's going to be a really large momentum shifting moment in the remainder uh, of this year. I I hope I'm reading that incorrectly. And some, I mean, the other thing is, is that this has thrown some Western military analysts sort of back on one of their, you know, tried and true explanations for this, that tanks and things like that are now obsolete because of the multiplicity of drones and so on and so forth, and, and precise longer range fires you know, again, I think, you know, that that's a misreading of the situation. And it's certainly, you know, no consolation to, to the Ukrainians doesn't solve their problem for them.
0: So I heard you earlier today talk about the fact that you don't think that there will be significant progress this year in a form or another, you, you said that again. So how do you see then the next six months from a military perspective? Is it going to be rather a stalling and almost not ceasefire, but effectively on the ground, slowing down of artillery um, during the winter and potentially to be restarted in the spring? Or how do you see, like, major – are there going to be any major episodes on, on either side um, as we're heading through the fall into the winter and into the spring?
1: Well, let's take the Russians first. The The recruiting drive, if we can call it that, that Putin has announced can't possibly produce competent forces, you know, for at least – six to nine months and i'm using competence uh you know even in by the russian uh yardstick i mean getting them clothed and equipped and so on and so forth um and the russians don't have much in the way of frontline equipment to give to people anymore i mean they're uh you know we've already seen them pulling Older and older systems out of storage. The Russian ability to launch a, like an air campaign, uh, you know, s- seems also to be all but impossible. They don't have the, you know, U- Ukrainian air defenses are winning that battle by a lot. I mean, Russian pilots were always already being very cautious about staying in their own airspace, and so on and so forth. All they've been doing is been expending longer-range missiles. You know, yesterday on Independence Day, they shot a handful of missiles at a train station in a small town just for terrorist purposes, just to make a statement about uh, Ukrainian independence. So, you know, I just don't think the Russians have the capacity to shifts to the battlefield equation uh, all that much. It will be, will be interesting to see if the Ukrainians continue to cobble together ways and maybe will be uh, given the green light to launch rockets into you know Russian sanctuary air bases and stuff like that. The Russians will have to move those aircraft pretty far forward to have any effect mm. whatsoever, and so the kind of strikes that we saw on the Saki airbase in uh, Crimea—you know—if the Russians don't watch out, they're going to have to; they'll expose themselves to similar kinds of strikes. Um, but again, you know, I think the question will be. Whether particularly the United States, because only the United States has the inventory of modern weapons that it can transfer to Ukraine, will the Biden administration like after the election or who knows what, uh, I still think they have a fair amount of drawdown capacity left, and, you know, yeah. billions of dollars left in the authorization that currently exists, uh, you know, to begin to transfer the kinds of capabilities to the Ukrainians that they would need for a, a spring offensive that would really be a counteroffensive in uh, in the traditional sense. Yeah. And, and again, I don't think the Russians have the capacity to cobble together additional military power in a way that would be able to really resist. The Ukrainians would, would be able to pick several places to strike, um, the Ukrainians have, have been very, you know, sort of calculated in the way that they've uh, employed the weapon systems that they that they've they've got. I don't doubt their capacity to integrate and to sustain reasonably well further armaments. So it could be that the winter time is really an opportunity to prepare for situation in the spring that would, you know, that would really shift the pendulum and the and the balance of power on the battlefield.
0: I think that's an interesting um, perspective. And this sort of brings us to the European security ac- architecture. I think you and I agree that a lot of Europeans, particularly in the West, are not even contemplating um, spring. It's been now i think months in which we've been talking again and again about the winter coming how hard it's going to be yes the winter is coming yes it's going to be cold
1: <laughs> nobody told me that would happen
0: <laughs> um and and these things go hand in hand so the energy problems that are diverse and complicated and of our own doing partially and will take sacrifices they will be going hand in hand with what looks like a very bad economic situation in Europe, maybe less so in the United States, but in Europe for sure. I think um, now we are at an inflation average of the EU at 9%. Um, recession in Germany, Europe's economic powerhouse, whether we like it or not, is uh, almost a certainty. The question is just how long it will take. Um, and this is, clearly will um, drive with it down other European economies. So the Europeans are now in a spot where they're saying on one side, everything is going bad. We're not looking, we're looking into ourselves and not um, towards Ukraine. I think that's very clear. And by the way, not just Germany, I think um, a number of central European countries do that. A number of Western countries do that. And on the other hand, they obviously, for good reasons, again the Trump years and all of that, lament and point to, oh, but you Americans have midterms, and you're the only ones that can hold this together. And that's true. Um, and so, and so we have been focusing obsessively to the winter is coming, but the spring is nothing that anybody wants to think about, um, and the from the military analysis, Giselle, that, that you just provided, it looks like we're not going to be in a radically different situation in March than we are now. Um, we're still going to have a part of the Ukrainian territory occupied. Maybe it will be more, maybe it will be less, but it won't be radically different. Um, Ukraine will still be dependent on western support militarily and and beyond and no one in the european security architecture um, seems to be except maybe i'm sure the poles and the bolts and the fins but beyond the usual suspects um, no one seems to be much concerned about that and the logic seems to be expressed in concern that the situation economically and energy-wise is going to be so bad that it will actually impact not just political support for Ukraine, but also social attitudes towards refugees. And so I think we're looking at a difficult winter, but we're also unrealistically not looking at the spring.
1: Well, I, I think that's a bottom observation. Um I mean, and again, I don't necessarily mean to stick pins in the Germans uh, per se, but they are, you know, sort of um, representative in this case. They don't seem to be able to think that far ahead and to plan accordingly. What are, are their real choices? Either to sort of figure out how to make it through, to undergo, I mean, it's too late to sort of, Avert, although they've been stocking up on, you know, their their uh, gas supply storage tanks are, you know, 85% full.
0: Yes, happy days. Both Germany and Romania are at the EU mark of 80% of their storage capacity full. <laughs> I
1: You know, I don't honestly know what that means. Does that mean a six-month
0: pie? Or... It means that they will not die in the winter, Okay, so they're not going to die.
1: Uh, I'm Pleased about that. What can they really do to get out of this conundrum? I don't even think that they. You know what? There have been you know voices in Germany and rightist voices across Europe. Though we should you know (laughs) open up Nord Stream two and you know bend the knee to uh, to the Russians, but that would be you know that would be to you know destroy the village in order to save it to a certain degree that that would leave them as the quislings of the western alliance uh the betrayer of not just ukraine but eastern europe and you know to the degree that you know this wouldn't go down really very well in uh, the united states The Biden administration has been very accommodating and very sensitive Mm -hmm. to not only German interests, but, you know, traditional uh, European interests and tried very hard to preserve NATO as a, uh, you know... Comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, okay, which is all good. But if, uh, you know, the longest standing and most powerful allies you know sort of halfway pull the plug on that um in the middle of the war i mean i can't think of anything that would be more corrosive to transatlantic relations uh, at least in the near term uh than that and many in america would love to blame germany and use that as an excuse to uh, you know think america first uh rhetoric wouldn't increase under under those kinds of uh, circumstances that, that
0: that I think that's true, but I think they're not aware Germany is not that much aware of that it's not used to thinking strategically, just like it's it chooses to be unaware of central and eastern european their loss of legitimacy in central and eastern Europe that would be that would be the right term, and they also know. Based on EU dynamics, that if they would try to pull the plug, and I think that's the people who are trying to pull the plug that are aware of that, that there is a number of European countries that are just waiting to follow suit, right? Um, and and so they.
1: But tell me, tell me, what what does Europe look like after that plug is pulled? I mean, what is the e- how does the EU function? In that kind of environment.
0: As an economic project, right? Uh, tied to Russia.
1: The European economy is going through a tough time. Um, are, 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 what if, I mean, what if they would try to loosen sanctions on, on Russia?
0: that's coming up in spring right
1: are you are you telling me there's not going to be any blowback
0: well i think it's uh, yeah sure we we might see in in such a scenario divisions serious divisions um but it's not something that we haven't seen before and i think a good example a con- current good example of that is um the ban of russian tourist visas where We have not just the Baltic countries, but Finland and Denmark, if I'm not mistaken, who are saying no more. And Chancellor Scholz is going out and saying that's not not an issue for us. And we will not find EU consensus on that, no matter how hard the pro-banners are pushing. And so I I don't know what this means for the European security architecture. I mean, I'm
1: just... Looking at this, you know, I don't know that the administration has taken a position on tourist visas one way or the other, but it has taken a strong position on sanctions Mm -hmm. and touts them as an important tool in, you know, bringing Russia to heel. And uh, that's principally uh, and also trying to promulgate. European energy alternatives to yeah. to Russian. It's gas. funny
0: how now everybody's uh, waiting in Europe for American LNG. <laughs> well, okay, but but
1: you know, again, to 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 back off on the sanctions, to to you know, go on bended knee for gas to Moscow would really blow a big hole in Biden yeah. administration policy, and arguably in. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, transatlantic relations of of all kinds, and you know, I don't know whether uh, you know again just use German as an example whether they're a strategic or they look at it s- straight in the face and, and just say, well, the you know we'll just knuckle under to the Americans at the end of the day. We won't actually make an active decision yeah. or or choice because you know again that that would that would take a lot of political courage for a german politician or a french politician or an italian politician or any you know um anybody other than viktor orban to you know i mean can the president of france or the chancellor of germany afford to stand with orban under these circumstances i mean that that just seems almost unfathomable.
0: I have uh I don't know if that faith is the right word, but but French politics and diplomacy um values itself to be sophisticated and we talked about this in different instances that means, you know, keeping contracts with the Russians and all of that. So, I think the drive is there. The I don't think all cards are on the table, and I do have in this instance, unfortunately, one more time, one more instance, um, faith in the Biden administration, credit where credit is due, they've been holding um the alliance and the West together amazingly, and without the Biden administration, where it is right now not just Ukraine, but Europe would look very, very different. I think we need to give really credit where credit is due. And it proves, unfortunately, one more time, that the European security architecture, which is really painful for me as a proud European to say, the European security architecture just does not stand without the United States. There's no way. And we see that with this war. Now, before we go, um, we owe our listeners... One more item, and that is Miss Daria Dugina, the daughter of famous Dugin, the ultra-nationalist, the one who invented, I believe, the term Novorossiya, New Russia, and actually drew the map um, that shows part of how now Ukraine is under occupation, um, the north of Crimea from Russia all the way to Moldova, including Moldova. He hasn't achieved his drawn goals yet, but I'm sure he's rooting for it. And, And we've seen the car bomb, um, and the effects of that. We've also seen his reaction by the way that video in- we
1: should explain
0: who she is. She's the daughter. Yeah, she's the daughter who and
1: herself a, a, a virulent nationalist. Uh,
0: yeah, she uh, yeah. she was called by the Pope an innocent victim of the war. that should be said too. Um, but I'm not sure how innocent she was because she called Ukrainian subhumans and uh, went on extensive rants um, on TV and in so-called scientific uh, literature um, about um, ultra-nationalism, essentially, and how Ukraine should be destroyed, etc. So from what was coming out of her mouth, I don't think she was particularly innocent. Um, but her, we don't know who was behind the attack. Of course, there's a lot of theories, including conspiracy theories, We've seen a video of her father arriving at the scene, which is bewildering when you look at his reaction, um, and uh, and we've seen her funeral um, or sequences of that, and we've also seen or read um, his her father's positioning just basically the next morning, a few days, a few hours after her death, um, when he seemed to have had a pre written positioning on that or reacted very fast for a father um, and uh, basically called for the total destruction of Ukraine in essence. Um, uh, do you... <laughs> I think I've said my, my, my bit. Pity that
1: John Le Carré has passed away because uh, this calls for a, you know, a multi-layered you know, Russian nesting doll spy thriller of, uh, of, of some sort. And I don't, you know, it's really hard to know exactly what to make of this. <laughs> there have been a lot of stories about how she was, uh, you know, secretly distancing herself from her father, but then also had sort of begun to take over the family uh, trade of uh, espousing, uh, you know, Russian. Imperialism and supremacy, and all the rest of that, and there are also a lot of stories uh, showing how Dugin himself is a self-promoter more than a truly important figure. Yeah. So, who the heck knows? Who the heck knows? Um, cert-
0: it's important to say that he wasn't as or he isn't as important, as close to Putin circles as people imagine. He's
1: not Putin's Rasputin, you know, but but he looks like Putin's (laughs) Rasputin. I mean, (laughs) you know, if he isn't, he should be. It does go to the very character of this regime. And the larger, you know, question, which still many in the West are wrestling with coming to the, an answer on is whether this is simply a Putin problem or a Russia problem, but, you know, it is another marker that, that there's something deeply problematic about Russian political culture, 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 you know, that, that has, you know, permeated even high Russian culture, you know, for a very, very uh, long time. And, Even if a year from now, when we celebrate the 32nd uh, anniversary of uh, Ukrainian independence, and even if it's a real day to celebrate in the sense that uh, Ukrainian sovereignty is being more obviously reclaimed, the larger uh, question will still be, what will we do? With Russia.
0: Um, yeah, I think that's uh that's a topic for a next episode or episodes, the future of Russia in six months and a year. We're gonna leave it at the open-ended question of whether it's a Putin and a Russia problem, though I think many of our loyal listeners know where we stand on this. And also before we go, shout out to the trolls, keep it coming. Um, we are very, very amused by what you're writing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, without without your hatred, we are nothing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is a great way to end it. Again, happy independence.
1: Well, actually, we should we should have an official Slava Ukraini, uh, you know, in in celebration of uh, of something positive.
0: Happy Independence uh, yeah. Day, um, Slava Ukraini, Hero- Heroiam Slava. From me, Julia, Georgia, and
1: And me, Giselle Donnelly, and in his absence, Dalibor Rohach, our missing colleague
0: our thoughts go to you we know that you're actually having fun if you're listening thank you for listening to the Eastern Front a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea the Eastern Front newsletter is now live you can sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive bi-weekly updates of newly released episodes exclusive Q&A with us the hosts and to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.